Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. The presidential election is still undecided. Several key states are still up in the air, including Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and results may not be known for several days. Late last night, Joe Biden urged patience. And it ain't over till every vote is counted, every ballot is counted. But President Trump falsely claimed victory and continued to make unfounded fraud claims. We were getting ready to win this election Frankly, we did win this election. With millions of votes still to be counted, we'll check in on the presidential race and bring you the latest state and local results and analysis. And we want to hear from you. Join us after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. America woke up this morning to an undecided presidential election with states including Nevada, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin still counting millions of ballots. Even so, President Trump falsely and recklessly claimed victory while challenger Joe Biden called for the votes to be counted. Meanwhile, Republicans appeared likely to retain control of the U.S. Senate while Democrats kept the House. Later in the hour, we're going to get the latest on California and Bay Area measures. But first, the presidential race. And joining us, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent and KQED host, co-host, excuse me, of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And good morning, Marisa. Morning, Michael. I'll also say good morning to Bruce Kane, who joins us for this segment, professor of political science at Stanford University and the director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West. Welcome, Bruce Kane. Good morning, Michael. Glad to have you both with us. And Bruce, let me begin with you. A couple of verities that came out last night uh, from a political scientist point of view, uh, where we're still up in the air about so many other things, uh, comes down again to the industrial western Rust Belt states and also to no blue wave as expected and polls being once again wrong. Yes, I think all that's true. Although I will point out that if Arizona remains democratic, that's a big deal. Uh, and if you look at what's going on in the West and the Southwest, uh, Nevada, you know, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas getting closer. So there's something going on in the Southwest that's sort of counteracting what's going on up in uh, the Rust Belt states. But uh, you're absolutely right, Michael. And I think the problem is with the polling. Let's start with that. It's a mistake on the part of the pollsters to just report one single number. Uh, there is probably, we're going to find that there are some voters, probably less well-educated voters, Trump supporters, who do not trust the media and do not trust pollsters and are avoiding 
the mainstream pollsters. And it happened in 2016, and I think it happened again. There's no way that uh, Biden's going to win by 10 points. It's more likely, right now it's a two, I think, Michael, and I think it's probably going to go up to four or five, or four maybe at the most. So clearly they're underestimating the Trump vote. The Trump vote was kind of predicted to be at 42 or 43, and right now it's sitting at 48. Maybe it'll drop down to 47, 46. So uh, the pollsters, the, there were two charts that I looked at throughout this whole period. One was on 538 and the other one was in The Economist and basically said, what if the turnout in 2020 is very similar in pattern to the turnout uh, and the mispredictions that were in 2016? And that's exactly where we are right now. And what that says is it's likely a narrow electoral college vis uh, a victory for Biden but it's gonna be very narrow. And most likely we're going to be uh, back into recount hell <laughs> where if, if, the, if the margins are narrow enough, we're gonna go back to 2000 election. We're gonna have people trying to disqualify write-in ballots on the basis of signatures or some other technicality. And that's where we'll be. So it won't, I don't think it'll be over, but I think it's, again, the pollsters need to be very careful about this because it's harder and harder to poll now. Uh, people don't answer their phones, people are on cell phones, and people mistrust the media. And Marisa, at this point, um, it's already being contested. The president said they actually, the Republicans and he, were victorious. There was fraud. Uh, last night he said uh, the Democrats uh, essentially try to steal the election and uh, Biden supporters uh, are trying to steal the election according to the president this morning and it's not going to take place. He's talking about moving things to the Supreme Court. I mean, all of this really uh, trying to sort it out in terms of what where this is going to go. Give us a trajectory of what you said, what you sense is really going on here or is apt to happen. Well, I mean, Trump's been laying the groundwork for this for months, right? He's trying, he's, you know, been talking about um, alleged uh, unsubstantiated fraud in mail-in ballots. Um, he knows that those, you know, were going to favor Democrats. And I think that, you know, we saw the Biden campaign anticipate this with the way that the former vice president spoke last night. Um, look, at this moment, it seems like Biden is the most likely to get to 270 electoral votes. I think if that's the case, it will likely be a very tight win. It may be 270-268. Um, it could come down to that one congressional district in Nebraska <laughs> that Joe Biden has won, if you can believe that. Um, but I think um, speaking to folks within the Biden campaign, they feel pretty confident this morning that we'll know more um, by this afternoon. Um, you know, Wisconsin is almost done counting um, Michigan just this morning. Biden has surged ahead. Um, and I think you know, one thing to keep in mind, and I think it does bear repeating as we are all doing that everything the president has said, um, I mean, essentially, almost everything he said last night in that speech was untrue. Um, but we haven't seen kind of the media infrastructure. I mean, I'm, I have Fox News on over here. And, you know, he's the one he is the only one saying this. <laughs> I think that is important that we haven't seen, you know, the National Republican Party come out. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of chatter on Twitter among his supporters. But I do think that um, <laughs> with the polls still being uh, where they were that Bruce just outlined, one thing we have learned from 2016, I think, in the media is to really kind of be careful about both, you know, the how we characterize what, what President Trump says, but also just not calling races that aren't ready to be called. I mean, the bottom line is here that 
in these states that are so close, um, they are counting mail-in ballots that were sent in before Election Day um, that in many cases were prevented from being counted before Election Day by Republican legislatures. So you have the situation where one party is essentially claiming, you know, instituting rules to prevent a count from happening and then have the president say when it does happen, it's it's not valid. And that's just completely untrue. Getting back for a moment to polls with you, Bruce, um, the polls may not have certainly been in any way uh, as well resolutely predictable as they would want to be because of all the reasons that you mentioned, but there were exit polls. Uh, and exit polls said that even though we have the highest number of deaths in the developed world, nearly half of those in the exit polls said well, they actually believe the government's efforts to contain the COVID virus, uh, to contain the coronavirus, excuse me, are going well or somewhat well. I find that uh, very difficult to sort of comprehend, and yet there it is. Um, it's also, I think, um, indicative of the fact that, um, well, let me just get to that for a moment. I'm interested to hear your response to that, because it's, everybody thought the pandemic was behind really a great deal of a blue wave or what would amount to a blue wave. And it wasn't. The economy seemed to, it's all James Carville again, uh, it was the economy stupid in many ways. And many people felt perhaps that Trump was better off uh, leading the economy and not leading us into socialism. Yeah, Michael, I think you put your finger on a really important question. And I can only give you tentative thoughts right now. Obviously, this is the sort of thing that uh, lots of us will be chewing over when uh, when we get the data. But I am with you that the, the, what fooled a lot of people was the perception or actually the data that showed that in terms of COVID, uh, the president was not given very high ratings on how he handled it. But I think it masks something that we saw in the way people were behaving, which is that to some degree, the COVID dispute has become an identity issue and has become a partisan issue. The whole issue about whether people would wear masks or not wear masks, the whole issue about whether the government was intruding too much in people's lives by telling them that they had to be quarantined or they had to observe certain rules, the whole concern about whether the economy should be favored to a greater degree over the safety of people, all those issues, when you look carefully at the data, were partisan issues. They divided along partisan lines and they got to some of the core identity issues of white nationalism and racism as well. So I'm not surprised in retrospect, although I suspect like most people, I was thinking that the deaths in some of these states, the red states would shake people's faith in uh, what they were hearing from the Trump administration, but apparently not. And it keeps testifying to the strength of these divisions along gender, along race, along education, and along party lines, how strong they have become in the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I keep thinking about John Dos Passos, and so we are two nations. Uh, it almost seems that we are indeed two nations. Let me go back to you, Marisa. Uh, Marisa Lagos with us. Uh, who is, of course, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And Risa, uh, let's uh, just talk about strategy here. The, the Democrats have been criticized for not going to Florida the way Hillary Clinton was, with Biden, the way Hillary Clinton was criticized for not going to the Rust Belt as much as she could have or should have or might have. But the Florida strategy particularly has been criticized because 
it seemed that President Trump really appealed to the Latino population there, meaning essentially Cubans and Venezuelans, uh, talking about Castro and Chavez and how under Biden it would go in that direction. But much of the criticism has to do with the way the Democrats spent money, $100 million in the race in South Carolina and $100 million uh, also in the race uh, in um, uh, with Amy McGrath uh, against uh, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Uh, the idea here is they could have spent their money a lot better or, for that matter, not spent it so heavily in Texas and Alabama. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things happening there. If you look at the Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath race, a lot of that was small donations, I think, from folks outside of uh, Kentucky who Democrats who were who were motivated to try to be, beat McConnell, obviously, for for political reasons. Um, you know, it's we don't know yet what the final map is going to look like. So I think it's a little premature to completely um, sort of to slam the spending. I mean, I think that was one of the challenges for Biden this year is that, you know, we a year ago, we're talking about Wisconsin as being the sort of litmus test, the canary in the coal mine, the defining state. Um, in recent weeks, you know, maybe that's polling. I mean, I know that it, it, just from the internal polling I've seen um, from the Biden campaign and, and you know, and, and what we've heard from the Trump campaign, I don't think their polls were any better than the public opinion polls we're talking about. Um, so yeah, Democrats may have gotten a little overexcited. And I think that that does speak to the sort of deep division in this country and the fact that I think for a lot of people, um, it seems like folks on the other side of the aisle are almost living in a different reality than them. Um, you know, I think Republicans feel like that about Democrats and Democrats feel like that about Republicans. Um, you know, but I think it's worth noting that at the end of the day, we are now watching a handful of small Rust Belt states. Uh, we're talking, you know, on the order of thousands, tens of thousands of votes, Michael, not millions. And this is just um, a different race than we might have expected even a week ago. Okay, we're talking about national election results, uh, or at least what we know so far. And you have questions, I know, and comments. So please let us know what's on your mind. What's your take on the election results so far? You can give us a call now, and I invite you to do that. 866-733-6786 is the number to join us. Again, please feel free to join us now. Toll free, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Talking with Bruce Kane and Marisa Lagos. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny, and we're talking about national election results, or at least what we know so far. We do want to hear from you. Your take on the election results so far, you can call us at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Again, join us, toll-free, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. Talking with Bruce Kane, professor of political science at Stanford and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West, and Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. 
Some comments coming in. Uh, Alvarez writes, I'm surprised that many Americans are afraid of socialism. Biden is not a, at all a socialist. On the contrary, Trump has all the characteristics of a dictatorship. And Jim writes, President Trump's early morning election fraud and victory claim speech is a perfect example of the fundamental differences in the parties. Republican leaders placed party first and country second. And here's Rachel. Let me go to you on this, uh, Bruce Kane. Rachel says Forbes had an article recently with 700 economists, including Nobel laureates, denouncing Trump's handling of the economy as chaotic and poorly managed. Ask your guests about this. Uh, no, I will ask you about this, Bruce, because the perception is somehow that Trump was much better, perhaps, at managing the economy than Joe Biden throughout the country. Yeah, I mean, as has been widely reported, obviously, he was the beneficiary of the recovery from the last recession we had that started under the uh, Obama administration, and he was able to benefit from it and uh, and to give people tax breaks, uh, at least certain people tax breaks. So uh, on the one hand, he was what we already know, that presidents get credit or blame for circumstances, whether or not they contributed to it. So that's part of what's going on. But I think the same conclusion that we had in 2016 still applies, which is it's somewhat deceptive to look at the overall uh, economic numbers, but rather it makes much more sense to go a little deeper and look at who's winning and who's losing as the economy makes its transition. And I think we can come to the same conclusion that there is a segment of America that is losing as we move towards high tech, green tech, um, you know, moving away from manufacturing, et cetera. And nothing is more dangerous for a democracy than large numbers of people who feel that their social, economic uh, situation is being, and political situation is being imperiled by outside forces, by automation by the changing nature of the economy. Downward mobility was precisely the problem that Germany had in the 30s. It is nobody likes to be downwardly mobile. Everybody likes to think that they can rise up and that their kids can get better. And so there are parts of the United States where people still have that kind of optimism and are benefiting, and they tend to be the people that go to college and are part of the new economy. But there's a whole bunch of people that aren't sharing at that. And Trump is the person who articulates their anger at that situation and at the system which has given them that situation. And I said it in 2016, and I'll say it again, until the Democratic Party takes that situation seriously and tries to spread the benefits of the new economic vision, including the problems of automation, until we actually grapple with those problems and think about the you know, what the future is for those people, they are going to remain angry. Yeah, I'm thinking about the fact that, uh, once again, Trump won West Virginia because Trump said he would save coal, even though coal doesn't look likely to be saved. Let me bring a caller on here. Dan joins us, our first caller from Santa Clara. Dan, you're on. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Well, thank you. Um, I think America won last night. If you recall all the talk of voter intimidation and people at the polls preventing people from voting and not counting the votes. All that didn't happen. Now we're going forward, of course, and we'll be fighting this out in the courts, noticeably not in the streets. 
I think that's a very, very good sign. Thank you. Okay, I thank you for that comment, and uh, it was the biggest turnout. Uh, Marisa, you want to weigh in here? Just that as of yet, nothing, I mean, there are court cases, but what's happening right now is we are counting ballots. There's not, we're not fighting this out in the courts. Um, It could happen. We all remember 2000. We all, you know, we all know the challenges that have been made before this election. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, I think, this is what we've been talking about for weeks, which is we all need to be patient and let valid bo- votes be counted. Um, but I agree with the caller. I mean, I, w- I was heartened that there was not, um, you know, civil unrest last night. And I think that what we saw across the country was largely people being able to exercise their democratic right. Marissa, you want to respond uh, to a question from Steve who tweets, uh, if polling has become unreliable, it's partially because so many polling calls turn out to be campaign ads or fundraising calls. How do we fix this? Yeah, yeah. I'd add that to the list of problems. I think that's a good point. Uh, that uh, you well, know, Excuse me, Bruce. Have... I went to Marisa on this, then let me hear from you. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry Marisa. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, think, um, I, I, feel, I think people have been overwhelmed this election cycle regardless um especially i've I've heard from folks who have who have donated and and things on um into campaigns and who feel like you know they they just they can't even look at their phones coming up to election day because of the texts and calls um that's certainly a problem i mean we've been seeing and i think bruce can speak to this maybe better but you know an evolution of polling around whether we're trying to do it on the phone or whether there's a way to do it um accurately online and i and i think obviously you know these conversations are going to continue to happen. Um, it's, it's just so interesting because actually a lot of the polling from what I can see of the ballot measures in California was pretty was pretty accurate. So um, it does seem like the challenge comes in these big national races. Um, and, you know, I think th- what I'll be interested to see in the days to come when we know what the outcome is in some of these swing states um, is, you know, what whether that was a huge miss um you know, overall in those states, or if we're looking at when you look at the congressional district level, kind of how that plays out. I know that's a little in the weeds for folks, but um, that was one of the big kind of takeaways from 2016 was this question of whether, you know, the national polls were right, but the but some of the state polls were wrong. Yeah, and we'll talk about those state measures and state elections later in this uh, first hour. Bruce, you were going to say? Um, well, first of all, I agree with everything that Marisa said. Uh, but, uh, you know, I uh, there, uh, as we speak, there's a bunch of political scientists that are going to be looking at this much more carefully in terms of, uh, you know, the polling and uh, and fixing it. So I, I I think that the real key right now is not the polling uh, because uh, it's quite possible that we're going to see that the margins uh, will uh, for the Democrats will increase, and so we we don't even know right now exactly how far off they are um, because I suspect that overwhelming number of these votes that came in as uh, absentee ballots uh, will go to the Democrats. The problem, you know, will be some of them may also be um, held out uh, because of uh, technicalities. And so that's the part of it that I worry about. And, uh, and, what we need to do is we need to be able to resolve all these issues. If, if, if the races get closer, we need to resolve them in time to make the safe harbor deadline in December 8th. And what I've been heartened by is that uh, I believe the returns are coming in a lot faster than I expected. So uh, I think that the registrars and uh, 
the people that are doing the counting are doing an excellent job under the circumstances. And I want to go to more of your calls. Let me bring Missy on as our next caller. Good morning, Missy. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, my question is, for the past four years, I've been listening to countless stories about 2016 Trump voters who have since defected, you know, giving this impression going into 2020 that any increased voter turnout would be favorable to Biden. Then come this morning, we find that Trump has managed to increase his voter base since 2016. And it's a little frustrating. I'm wondering, where were these stories over the past four years? Why hasn't there been any coverage of, you know, the 2016 voter who didn't support Trump and has since changed their mind to now support him? Um, you know, wh- where where did NPR fall short? Where did KQED fall short? I'll take oh. my uh, answer off the air. All thank right. You. And I thank you for the question, Missy. I'm going to go to you, Marisa. Well, I mean, we live in a country of 328 million people, um, and it is, you know, there's polling, which we've been discussing, and and the challenges there, which is like actual numbers and data, and then there's anecdotal evidence, and it's it's hard. Um, It was further, I would argue, complicated by this year's pandemic and the lack of ability um, of reporters to be on the ground talking to folks in the same way. Um, But, you know, again, like, I I know that it's hard because um, we all want to sort of Monday morning quarterback this immediately, but I don't even know that it's Monday morning yet in this race. Like, right? Like, we don't have the outcomes. We don't have the final votes. Um, yeah, it, it, it's challenging. I mean, you know, as somebody who co- talks about this, you know, serves as an analyst, but I've not been out on the campaign trail um, in these swing states this year. Um, it is, it is a lot. And you know, Bruce brought up Arizona at the beginning, and I think that's a really um, kind of important point, which is how, you know, we are seeing certain areas of the country shift. But I think if you look at something like what happened in Florida versus Arizona, it speaks to the challenges that Democrats have had for many years um, with Latinos, um, to some extent with African Americans, and particularly men of, of you know, black men and, and um, Latino men. And the fact that, you know, groups are not monoliths. And I think sometimes we are tempted to think of them as such, but the Latino community in the United States is very diverse and is in, interested in different sort of political outcomes if you're in California versus Florida versus perhaps Arizona or Nevada. And we'll bring another caller board. We'll go next to you, Morgan. Thank you for waiting. Join us, please. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is, I know that Florida is being portrayed sort of as a failure for Democrats, but um, I'm wondering what the actual vote count for Biden versus Hillary, um, and is there more raw votes for Democrats um, in 2020 versus 2016? And would that really kind of um, set the stage maybe for things to change there in the future? Can you help us here, Bruce Kane? I'm going to go to you. Um, You know, it's very early to say, but it looks like it's quite possible because the turnout is up that you're going to see in terms of raw votes that uh, Biden has more raw votes. But I I think uh, I would go back to what Marisa just said, is that where we, uh, where the pollsters, because I didn't do any polling, so I'm absconding myself from responsibility. But anyway, uh, where I think we went wrong on Florida is precisely the point that Marisa just made, which is uh, the Latino community the Cubans and the Venezuelans, uh, the male 
uh, Hispanics, that something was going on there that was resonating with Trump in ways that weren't being picked up. And if you looked at most of the polls, there was a lot of under uh, under polling of the Latino community, in my opinion. Uh, they often had very, very small numbers, and they certainly didn't have enough to differentiate between the different types of nationalities. And we may discover that Mexican-Americans sort of stayed at their about 60% level, but we may discover that some of the Central Americans or the uh, or the Cubans, et cetera, really resonated with uh, this particular claim that the Democrats are socialists. Now, it's not fair because the Democratic Party actually went out of their way to pick the, the most centrist of all the candidates that was running, almost. There were one or two that were more centrist than Biden, but they picked the most centrist candidate. But in the end, the the coalition of the Democratic Party is is very diverse, and there is a very strong progressive uh, segment that is taken very seriously with very smart people in it. And so for the Republican Party to sort of point their fingers at that and say those are socialists for people that had escaped socialism <laughs> in other countries, that can be that can resonate with them. And so that's I, I, I'm with Marisa. You can't assume that just because the country is becoming more ethnically and racially diverse, it necessarily is going to become more democratic and liberal. Yeah, somehow it doesn't uh, figure that Joe Biden could be cast as Hugo Chavez or Fidel Castro, but nevertheless, that I think was indeed perhaps the case. Bruce, always good to have you with us. Thank you, Bruce Kane. We're going to shift now okay. and talk about local and state measures. Bruce Kane, again, professor of political science at Stanford and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West. And in California, well, proposition, uh, we're actually going to turn our attention now to California and Bay Area results. And on the state ballot, Prop 22, which would create new regulations for delivery app drivers, emerged victorious after the most expensive statewide ballot measure campaign. Other propositions, including 16 to overturn the state's ban on affirmative action and 15 to raise tax rates on commercial properties were trailing. In this uh, segment, we're going to talk election results now in national. We can stay with that, but mainly focus on state and local. And Marisa is going to stay with us. Thank you, Marisa. Of course. And also joining us is Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And welcome, Guy. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you. Uh, Guy, let's start with you and let's talk about the propositions. Let's just get the picture. As I said, 22 passed, and that's big news. Uh, let's say what that will mean, but also a number went down in defeat. Um, affirmative action, as I said, and the property tax, no, um, and voting age. Um, in fact, there were probably more that went down that, uh, or that are going to go down or headed toward there than have come through. But let's talk first about 22. Right. So this was uh, a, an effort by Lyft, Uber, um, other app companies to try to get workers reclassified as independent contractors. Um, this was, you know, basically enshrining kind of a carve out in state law for them. Ultimately, it turned out to be the most expensive uh, ballot measure campaign in California history. But you'd have to say, you know, as these companies portrayed this as kind of an uh, existential threat to their business model, you have to say this was that, you know, it paid off in the end, um, especially as we saw that the vote margins currently it's at yes is at 58 percent. That's definitely exceeded what we saw in polling throughout the month of October. And the other propositions, Marissa, um, I mentioned a lot of them went down, but certainly there were a few that likely to pass. I always wonder why the legislature can't do this work, but we'll well, some of them that for another do. day. Yeah. <laughs> some of them they did do. I mean, Prop 22 is a perfect example. They passed AB5. Uh, yeah. Uber and Lyft did not like that law, so they went to the voters to overturn it. Um, yeah, I mean... 
another one that the legislature did deal with and voters rejected was Prop 25. That was a referendum on a Senate bill that was passed two years ago. It would have eliminated money bail. Um, that is losing 44 to 55 right now. And I think um, it's not going to go anywhere, which means the current bail system in California will stand. Um, that's an interesting one because it kind of uh, stands in contrast to Prop 20, which would have rolled back um, some of the criminal justice reforms we've embraced in recent years. That one went down um, handily. It's 62-37 right now. Um, and I, I would say that the difference there, um, I'm not reading Prop 25 as necessarily a rebuke of criminal justice reform. Um, you had a sort of interesting coalition that was formed. This was put on the ballot to um, you know, keep money bail in place by the bail industry and by law enforcement groups. Um, but then we did have folks on the left who had concerns about the system that would have replaced bail and who actually campaigned against this. And so you kind of had this uh, interesting coalition um, that came together to defeat that one. What are your questions about state and Bay Area election results? You can give us a call now. I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's, again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Talking again about state and local re election results with Marisa Lagos and Guy Marzarati, and certainly want to hear from you. Uh, again, if you have any questions and uh we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be gone for about 60 seconds. But when we come back, I want to talk about uh, not only election results in terms of the state propositions, but also get into some of the races. They're at this point looking uh, as if we can give you some real results. I'm talking, of course, about what we spent time on in forum, Dave Cortese uh, and Ann Ravel, uh, Ravel, excuse me, as well as the Scott Wiener race in District 11. Um, and the race on the Board of Supervisors. We try to cover as much as we can with you, as well as uh, other things that we've covered. And I'm talking particularly about Measure RR, the sales tax for Caltrain, which needed two-thirds in three counties to get by, and looks like it's going to get by. More when we return. Let's hear from you. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking state and local election results now with Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And Guy, I'm going to go to you on RR, uh, which we spent some time on, as I said. I actually had a couple of uh, programs devoted to it. Uh, it's really remarkable. It got past all the politics, but also got past two-thirds in three different counties. This is the sales tax increase for Caltrain. Right. I think start with the politics you mentioned. I mean, there was so much stacked against this measure, beginning with that kind of labyrinth of politics in those three counties just to make it onto the ballot. Add on top of that, you're pushing a regressive sales tax in the middle of a recession at a time when ridership is plummeting for Caltrain. But ultimately, 
they won the argument, it seems like. It, it's uh, looking at about 70% in this three-county total. And you might peg it to the supporters' kind of desperation. I mean, our uh, Dan Brecky talked to San Mateo Supervisor Dave Pine, who called it a lifeline. And I think maybe that's the pitch that worked to voters, many of whom might not be taking Caltrain anytime soon, yet they're going to have to pay uh, the sales tax for it. Um, but I think that the argument worked uh, that this is really make or break for this system. And let me ask you also, Guy, I want to bring our callers on because I know the listeners have many questions, but just uh, about something else that came through last night, uh, Bay Area measures strengthening independent oversight of law enforcement. This seems to be consistent throughout the Bay Area. Right. I think this is, you know, the the biggest trend I saw last night in Bay Area local measures. Um, And I think it's likely that, you know, Bay Area voters were finding kind of a direct electoral outlet for this movement against police brutality that has been brewing all year across the country. But these really were concrete measures on the ballot that I think voters could express that in, um, whether it was kind of adding oversight powers like we saw in uh, Sonoma Uh, in San Francisco, creating new offices like in Oakland to oversee uh, uh, OPD outside of the department. Even, you know, in San Francisco, a measure to kind of get directly at police funding. These were mostly oversight measures, um, but you had a measure in San Francisco that really got more to the, I guess you could say, beginning the steps towards defunding the police, taking away the minimum officer requirement that therefore would kind of open it up in later years, uh, perhaps, uh, to, you know, decrease the budget for uh, SFPD. And I mentioned a couple of races uh, that were of importance that we spent some time on in the forum program. Uh, Marisa, could you talk about District 11, which includes San Francisco, Daly City, Colma, Broadmoor, and parts of South San Francisco? And Scott Weiner, the incumbent, looks like he's on to victory. Yeah, um, this was a challenge. Um, I mean, as always, I, I like to start with the asterisk, Michael, that we are talking about San Francisco. So it's a it's a it's a range of liberal Democrats. Um, and Scott Weiner was challenged from his left by Jackie Fielder, um, a young uh, activist who um, I think mounted a very impressive campaign. Um, she is losing about like 40, 60 at this point um, and, and has conceded. But um, I, I would predict this is not the last we hear from Jackie Fielder. Um, but it was, I think, a big one for Scott Weiner. I think some folks close to him were getting nervous in the final days of this campaign. Um, Fielder talked a lot about climate change as an issue. And um, Weiner has always had um, some on the left who have not been super pleased with him in San Francisco, who see him as too close to real estate developers and others. Um, although I always like to note, having spent a lot of time in Sacramento, that all of all of these conversations, again, are very unique to San Francisco because Scott Weiner is one of the most reliably progressive votes in the state Senate. And can you, Guy, uh, give us an outline of what happened down in Senate District 15 between Dave Cortese and Ann Ravel? Right. So this race hasn't been called yet, but it's looking good for Cortese. He has about an eight-point lead um, in Santa Clara's yet to update votes, but that's kind of how it stood last night. I talked to him late last night. He felt confident about where he is uh, in this race. Again, this is like another Democrat on Democrat race. Lots of money coming in, uh, especially from independent expenditures. It basically by the end of the campaign, clearing ten million dollars when you take into account campaign spending as well. Um, and a lot of this was over the kind of typical uh, Democrat versus Democrat divide we've seen in recent years in Bay Area legislative general elections, where you had business groups uh, giving to Ravel 
organized labor getting behind Cortesi. What I was interested in, you know, in this race emerged the fact that Cortesi was kind of unabashedly supportive of the pro-housing, pro-development, pro-zoning reform ideas that Wiener has largely uh, championed in the state legislature. And I think we've seen this in, in recent years, election after election, those kind of issues being really third rails in city council, uh, you know, local supervisors races. But when you get to the state legislature, there has been some success of candidates running on more of a pro-housing message. That certainly was the case for Cortesi. And I'm going to bring a caller in here. Amy joins us from Alameda. Amy, welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm wondering now that uh, 22 has passed, do you think that there'll be any other carve-outs for other gig-based businesses? Amy, you're kind of fading in and out here, but I think she, yeah. she wants to know about Prop 22. Will other carve-outs uh, be forthcoming, Marisa? Well, um, if you have $200 million to spend, maybe. I don't, I don't spend, know. The maybe. wellness business has 200 M's. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I think that... You know, this was a huge loss for labor. I've already seen um, some folks within that community out here saying the battle's not over. Um, you know, it, this, I mean, literally $200 million, the, these gig companies broke state records on spending. So I think that, um, is this the last we'll hear about this conversation? Absolutely not. I mean, in some ways, Prop 22 um, is remarkable for how narrow it is, right? It's only applying to app-based delivery drivers. This does not apply to all the other industries that um, AB5 and that original Supreme Court decision did. So yeah, this is going to continue to be a conversation both in the legislature, um, and I would not be surprised if one side or the other brought another ballot measure in the future to voters. And Guy, can you talk a little bit about uh, youth voting? There was a measure in Oakland, QQ, uh, had strong support uh, about kids uh, as young as 16 voting in school board elections, but also his proposition um, G uh, where st in San Francisco, where I guess 16-year-olds would be allowed to vote in local elections and ballot measures. Right. And so far, QQ in Oakland is faring a lot better. Um, and that's, again, just limited to voting for OUSD directors. Um, the measure in San Francisco, uh, Prop G, would allow voting for 16-year-olds for, for any local election. So Board of Supervisor, local ballot measures, perhaps voters thought that was a step too far. This is actually something that was on the ballot in, in San Francisco in 2016. I think supporters felt like the involvement Gen Z has had in so many of the recent protest movements from Black Lives Matter to climate protest, uh, you know, uh, gun control protests. I think maybe there was a, a feeling like th that could put this kind of idea over the hump when it came to extending that youth involvement to voting. Um, but right now in San Francisco, it's, it's very close. And we should add at the state level, there was a proposal to allow 17 year olds to vote in some primary and special elections um, if they turn 18 by the general election. That did not go well uh, either. That looks headed, Prop 18 headed to defeat. And again, if you have questions about the propositions or the Bay Area election results, you can give us a call right now at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And here's Dave from San Francisco. Dave, good morning. Uh, yeah, hi. About the Caltrain, uh, I've always felt Caltrain was kind of an anomaly. I mean, it was a great service, I guess, for the you know, small fraction of people that used it. But why should I want to have to pay for it when I've never taken it in my life and I probably never will? Like They could just take that money and put it towards finishing the BART loop all the way to San Jose and be done with it. I suppose there are people who feel the way you do, Dave. Uh, Marisa, you want to weigh in? 
Yeah, I mean, this is always a challenge um, for big public infrastructure projects, particularly um, ones where we talk about transit. I, I think it's one of the reasons that BART has struggled so mightily to expand its service area. Um, but, you know, I think it seems like voters were looking kind of beyond the pandemic with this one. Um, and I, you know, it, it it's so interesting. I was just looking at the San Francisco results, comparing them to the statewide results, and you just really see how much more liberal, especially the city, but, you know, the region broadly um, is than, than the rest of the state. Big question from a listener named Susan who says, how can we limit the money in campaigns and dishonest advertising? Uber and Lyft spent over... $200 million on deceptive advertising that Prop 22 is good for its workers. The companies set up the workers, did an intimidating campaign, asking their drivers if they supported this, and then used that as a credible survey. It's like Trump. Nothing they say is believable. Well, strong sentiments there, but one comment, Guy? Well, I think in, in terms of the fact-checking, I think we tried our best throughout the campaign, uh, the Prop 22 campaign, to give the best coverage we could. I think you know, campaign finance reform to that extent, especially when you're involving business, outside business contributions. I think the Supreme Court has uh, weighed in pretty clearly on that. I don't think that's something you're going to see change really in California. Um, but we certainly like, you know, this is the, the latest in a long line of expensive propositions. I think going into this year, we probably thought Proposition 15, that campaign about commercial property taxes, would break all kind of records um, until, you know, it was completely overshadowed uh, by Prop 22. And there's a question for you, Marisa. A listener writes, uh, what about California House seats? The only one that seems close right now is Cox versus Volato. Is that a win for Democrats? Um. I think the House seats, were. it's going to take a while. I mean, they're all very close, um, the ones that we've been watching. Um, Valadeo, I mean, the, that was uh, a very exciting pickup for for Democrats um, when it happened in 2018. If you recall, that race was called for Valadeo initially. So um, I am not ready to, call, you know, obviously the AP hasn't called, so we're not calling any of these races. Um, I was struck by how close uh, District 50, that's the Duncan Hunter seat, was. Um, you know, this is a district down in eastern San Diego County that has very strong Republican registration advantage. And and um, the Democratic uh, Amar Kampanjar um, is given Daryl Issa, formerly a congressman from San Diego or the western part of San Diego, a real run for his money. Um, so, yeah, it's I'm, I mean, it's looking better for Republicans in some of those Orange County seats than it did last night. But again, um, some of these races took weeks to call in 2018. And, and I think we're all, you know, being rightfully very careful about making any predictions at this point. Well, it might be uh, a concern to take care also here locally in our own backyard, but I'm wondering, Guy, what your thoughts are about the San Francisco supervisorial races and how that's turning out. Well, those are certainly uh, also nail-biting, and you add in the ranked choice voting, which can be confusing if you're following it on a day-to-day -day basis. At this point, I think it seems kind of up in the air, uh, the balance of power, whether that could tilt towards progressives. Um, but you have a few races outstanding in the Richmond district, uh, kind of in southwest San Francisco, that could ultimately tip that one way or another. But that'll be, I think, again, races that we'll be following for, for the next week or so. And I'm looking at a, uh, I see a comment from Bob, but it turns into a question. He writes, I'm 60 years old, I've run several businesses, 
and I'm adept at reading technical documents. I don't understand how some of these propositions can be written so poorly. For example, the proposition to allow discrimination for minority groups was written terribly. It took me a while to figure it out. Who wrote that proposition and was there any consideration for their audience? Let's talk about really poor writing on propositions. It's been a, a long time concern of voters and your thoughts, Marisa? Well, I mean, there's two things here, right? There's the actual uh, text of the ballot measure, which um, I am sure some voters do read in depth, but a lot, you know, rely on the, the written ballot summaries that are written by the Attorney General's office. Um, you know, this has long been a fight um, that you have someone who is a partisan. Excuse me, Marisa, I should mention that was about Prop 16, just to take, clarify. Yeah, yeah so, so that was actually put on the ballot by the state legislature. So um, if right. you want to blame anyone for the, for the, the text of the measure, it's them. But, you know, the, the attorney general is the one who, whose office does the ballot title and summary. Um, it is generally a point of debate in a lot of these races because, obviously, that's a partisan office. We have a Democrat there. We've had a Democrat in that office for many years now. Um, and there's often concern that even though they're supposed to be writing them in a sort of straightforward manner, that, that, that there is, um, you know, kind of political consideration taken. Um, that's kind of a separate conversation. But yeah, I mean, look, it's a lot. We had a dozen ballot measures. Most of them are incredibly complicated. Um, and as a voter, you know, this is what I do for my job. And there are ones on there that like, I'm going, really, you want me to weigh in on this? Um, I feel like we have this conversation every time we have a crowded ballot in California. Um, but I don't think that there's a lot of political will, even with the sort of concern by voters to actually overturn this, because I think we really do like having um, this direct democracy in California. And, you know, it does open the playing field to obviously folks with deep pockets. But, um, you know, in other cases, it's it's led to really big progressive changes. So I think it just kind of depends on where where you sit um, in a particular ballot measure fight as to whether you're uh, happy or sad about the fact that we have to weigh in on these. And a tweet uh, from a listener named Kevin Guy Marzarati who wants to know, do we have information on the state legislatures or any likely to change? You know, at this point, I think uh, Democrats are in good position to keep their supermajority. Actually, if you take, take a look at some of the state Senate races in Southern California, Orange County outside of L.A., I think it's, you know, Democrats are in good position to probably pick up anywhere from, you know, one to four seats, um, which I find interesting because at the same time as voters are continuing to vote out moderate Republicans from the legislature, if you look at the way these ballot measures went yesterday, the, a lot of these were, you know, ideas from the Democratic legislature that voters rejected. You know, you look at the regulations of, of gig workers in Prop 22. You look at the cash bail deal that was reached in Prop 25 and, and voted down by voters. Other measures, as Marisa said, put directly on the ballot by the state legislature and rejected Prop 16, Prop 18. So despite the fact that voters seem to not really be buying some of these policy prescriptions from Democrats, you're still seeing the state Democratic Party make inroads and potentially pick up seats, uh, adding seats to their already existing supermajority. And the two ballot measures that were sort of redux, I'm thinking about uh, redux from 2018, uh, voters voted down again. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. 21, of course, which would expand rent control uh, to cities, and 23, which would mean new rules uh, or regulations for dialysis clinics. Uh, let's talk about some local measures, though. Uh, interested to hear what you have to say both of you. Uh, let's start with one we covered on on forum. Uh, that's Mountain View RV parking, Measure C, the ban on RV parking. Marisa? 
Uh, I have actually not been following that one. Um, I, I mean, I think at this point it looks uh, it looks like Measure C is is headed to pass. I would say, you know, I think this is kind of the latest chapter in Mountain View's fight over affordable housing. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, the the city council who initially put this uh, in, law into effect, banning RVs in certain areas of the city before it was placed on a referendum. I think ultimately they were able to make the argument that they've set up enough safe parking spaces around the city, that this was not simply an effort to kick RV dwellers out of town, that there were some kind of options for them within Mountain View. Um, Obviously, opponents have disagreed with that and said, basically, you are kicking out residents who are having a hard time uh, affording life on the peninsula in the South Bay. So um, I, I think this was, you know, We've seen rent control fights in Mountain View in recent years, and this was just kind of the latest chapter. And a question from Heather. We've got very little time left here, but I'm wondering, Marissa, what you would say to her. She says, I recently moved back to San Francisco after two decades away. I was surprised to see so many Democrats criticized from the political left for being pro-real estate. I'm genuinely confused as to why being pro-real estate is such a bad thing. It's a legitimate industry. Could someone please explain why (laughs) real estate has such a bad reputation here? Oh, we could do an hour on this. I mean, I think two things. One is that the realtors have been historically one of the biggest political players in the state, bar none, both lobbying and campaign spending. Um, You know, the other is that this is kind of the crux of this conversation over housing, affordable housing, NIMBYism, YIMBYism, this, you know, this question of, I think, what's happened in San Francisco to, to put this briefly, since we're running out of time, is that there is a split um, among lefties in a city like this as to whether the market can actually help bring down real estate prices and make things more affordable. And and some folks believe that you should let the free market build more and that if you have, you know, more housing, that it will automatically make things cheaper. And those um, further to the left who think that government essentially needs to subsidize affordable housing and that developers are only going to build kind of luxury real estate um, and they're not going to do anything to help middle and low income people. Marisa, Guy, let me thank you both for being with us. Always great analysis and I appreciate it. Let's Thank do it again you. in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, me and Kim up ahead for an hour, another hour of forum. Thank you for being with us for this opening hour. We'll keep you apprised of actually everything that's going on uh, in the elections and uh, politically. And please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.